Welcome to episode 7 of The Grey Nado, a loose discussion of travel, adventure, diving, gear, and most certainly watches. I'm Jason Heaton. And I'm James Stacy. Today we're talking about watch brand partnerships from celebrities to sports to adventures and charities. We've even got an interesting interview on that topic. Before we dig in, a special thanks from Jason and I to Michael Stockton and Fratello Watches uh, for their coverage of the Grenado. It was all too kind and oh so much appreciated. You can follow Michael at Mike in Frankfurt and at Fratello Watches on Instagram. Long live Speedy Tuesday. And on with today's topic. So again, we're talking about watch partnerships. And this is something that I think everybody has an opinion on as far as the way brands want to interface with other entities within pop culture etc and the way you know i made some brief notes on this to try and collect my thoughts and i think that the types of partnerships fall basically into five rough categories so you have like a celebrity partnership so that's a personality and or a product which so it could be anything from an actor to a role they play in a movie then you have products so that's everything from you know aston martin and richard mill have a brand new partnership breitling and bentley jag and bramont then you have sports institutions, so that could be like a team or a series. So Tissot has a very like new and, and big connection with the NBA. Rolex, of course, is in, has uh, their endurance racing series. Chopar works with Porsche Motorsport. Then you have uh, exploring and endeavors, so that could be like Rolex and their connection with uh, the Mountaineer, Alpinist Ed Vesters, or even James Cameron and the Deep Sea Challenge. Also, Bremont and the Terra Nova Expedition. And then finally, you have charity slash philanthropy. So that could be like Blancpain, the Ocean Commitment, Cobalt, and their uh, factory in Nepal and their connection with Renault Fines. And then you have Oris and, you know, a number of various partnerships, including things like their Great Barrier Reef initiatives. So, Jason, let's start from the enthusiast perspective. Has... A partnership ever pulled you in to buy a watch? Has it ever kind of piqued your interest and, and brought you to a model that maybe you wouldn't have leaned on beforehand? What, what What's your experience with watch partnerships as an enthusiast? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a big... For me, watches are... It's so tied up in storytelling. And, and for me, the history of a watch, the history of a brand, that whole tie-in has always resonated with me. So I think you know certain partnerships work better than others. Um, but for the most part... If it's if it's a an ambassador or an expedition or even a charity or some sort of conservation cause, it really has to resonate with me. And and as listeners will know, and as you know, James, I mean, I, for me, I'm, I'm a real outdoorsy guy. I like diving and, and climbing and sort of the history of exploration. And so a lot of the brands that you mentioned earlier are ones that that maybe they didn't draw me in based on on a partnership, but. They have sort of endeared me to the brand, and I think you know Bremont is an example. I, I I followed with great enthusiasm the the Terra Nova expedition a couple of years ago when when the polar explorer Ben Saunders did that man haul from the edge of the Antarctic Peninsula to the South Pole and back, and he was actually wearing one of their watches uh, while he did it. Um, and they sort of had this dramatic debut of the watch on the last day of the expedition he took a picture of it in his tent and said you know introducing this new watch from Bremont that I've been wearing for the past couple of months while I was doing this expedition I thought that was uh it was great I thought I mean, it was I, really cool that the watch wasn't simply a, an existing model that they slapped you know an icon like a, a a new logo on the dial to connect with a new partnership like they designed a watch around the rough parameters of that trip so of course you had a gmt movement which gave them the ability 
to actually measure compass heading yeah. in, in, in situations where the compass wasn't use, usable, obviously, when you're that close to the South Pole. Right. And also as a titanium version of the Supermarine. Mm-hmm. And that previously didn't exist. They were steel, so they had gone lighter. I mean, this was an expedition where they were cutting off the ends of their toothbrushes yeah. to save weight. Yeah. So they it wasn't a joke when they decided to go with titanium and decided to go with a uh, compass bezel. That was designed for the rough, and that, and that's why they only made so many. I mean, it was limited. I want to say there's 300 Terra Novas. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly cool watches, but uh, an, an interesting actual tie-in with that event. I think I, I think that gets to a key point. I think I've always been drawn to sort of purpose-built watches. So maybe in the 50s, 60s, 70s, watches were, because they were legitimate tools, a lot of times they were built for specific purposes, and you've got... Um, I think the brands at that time, you didn't have the, the full-on uh, partnerships that you have nowadays, but they, they still recognized the appeal of having a Reinhold Messner in a National Geographic ad wearing an oyster quartz while he's on the summit of Everest. Um, and I think that legitimacy is important to me when I look at, at watch partnerships, uh, especially from that celebrity or ambassador or expedition type uh, genre that you were talking about, because... There are some certainly some lazy examples uh, of watch tie-ins where you know you're slapping a logo on a dial or um, you know just creating a, a certain colorway to commemorate a special edition. And to me, that that doesn't draw me in like like some of the more legitimate ones with with ambassadors or or causes things like that. Yeah, I think generally I would say that like these sorts of partnerships especially ones with actors and such i'm not that interested in like they it probably wouldn't lead me to even change my opinion of a watch uh like i, I find it kind of fun to, when you can spot a watch on a late night talk show or in a movie and you know what it is like that can be kind of fun but i, I generally don't necessarily care who's wearing it at that mm-hmm. point yeah it's more just like the watch nerd cred of being like you know oh i paused the pvr and, and oh i know what that is yeah that's good. That's so what's your what's your take on on the the James Bond tie-in with with Omega, how do you? I th- I think it's hugely powerful for the brand, but I don't think it's for enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I say that, like, I'm not that interested in most of these partnerships. I think most watch enthusiasts consider these ancillary to the watches. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, the idea is that. You know, it's about attaching watches to a non-watch enthusiast audience. Yeah. So I don't think Rolex or Omega or Bonpin or some of these brands that have a lot of interesting partnerships or a lot of kind of big name celebrity partnerships, which let's face it, aren't that interesting generally. Mm -hmm. I don't think they need a lot of help selling watches to people like us. Yeah. When it comes to watches, we're not very price sensitive. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we'll save up and buy, um, we'll, we'll sell and trade and flip and get to what we want eventually. It can take a long time, but a lot of these brands have been around for so long, it doesn't matter. They just, and they're, they're about curating enthusiasts at a certain level. But I think most of these brands, and this includes even brands that are pretty subtle with their general partnerships like Rolex, they don't need a lot of help selling to enthusiasts but they do need a lot of help connecting at an emotional level with people who have never felt strongly about a watch so they find a product or a cultural offering that connects with an audience deemed to be you know of the right age right and income level and price sensitivity to be capable of buying their watches or to be likely to aspire to buying one of their watches 
I think that's the secret sauce of this whole formula isn't so much, mm-hmm. you know, oh, if we get Clive Owen to wear a reverso, are we going to sell more reversos to guys that already own two or three JLCs or two or three watches of a JLC price point? <laughs> no. Like I, I honest, like I don't have data to back that up, but my gut tells me no. What, what's interesting about a, a tie-in with somebody like Clive Owen and 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 Jager Lecoult is is that um, it, that alone does not draw me to the brand or make me like. Well, I, I shouldn't say. You know, actually, I take that back. It, it almost makes me like Clive Owen better than it does. Agreed. Make me, I think it's a net positive gain. Yeah, and and I with with these actor or celebrity ambassadors if if it feels too just like blatant like where they just sign them up to wear the watch it doesn't feel as authentic but when you listen to a guy like george clooney who was attached to the speedmaster back when he was a kid because of his interest in the space program and his father had a speedmaster in the 60s it it feels more authentic i mean and and maybe i've just you know taken and drank the kool-aid at this point but um, to hear him and his passion for that is is very interesting to me. And similarly, I've read interviews with Clive Owen, you know, whether true or not, I'm, I'm, it's, it rang authentic to me. I think he has genuinely taken an interest in in his watches. And frankly, with a brand like JLC, you kind of feel like if, if somebody's talking the talk and they're visiting the factory, chances are, you know, they're going to they're gonna kind of drink the Kool-Aid as well. I, I get the sense that he's kind of a watch geek. Yeah, and I would totally agree. And, and I think that celebrities maybe not as not as haphazard in all its scenarios i think watch guys and gals tend to be you know tough and certainly i am on things like ambassadors because it seems like you know a watch brand simply attaching themselves to another household name Mm -hmm. but i do agree that in situations where you find out that this person whose work that you like whether they're an actor or in some in some situations maybe a race car driver or an alpinist or whatever just somebody that you kind of admire for one reason or another shares this a little bit of this kind of crazy hobby of loving watches which is a really crazy hobby yeah yeah i think it it's endearing basically and at the, at the other end of the spectrum and again you know, i think we both know the reasons for this and you touched on it before uh you get some a partnership like Tissot has with the nba which it's clearly it was it was done at a very high level. It, it made sense for both the NBA and for Tissot, um, exposure for Tissot, some sponsorship money for the NBA, and and the watches. You know, I saw them at Basel World, and and they're very unremarkable watches. I mean, if if you want a three hundred or whatever dollar uh, quartz chronograph that you get with a Quickster, you know, it's a fine watch um, for what it is. But the NBA branding to me feels a little lazy. Um, you know, the back has the team logo on the case back. And then it has um, some sort of team-colored striped NATO strap with it. I mean, to me, that feels... I think that's a perfect example of the watch that isn't for a watch enthusiast. Exactly. It's for the guy who's buying... And and I was asking um, a person from Tissot about this partnership, and I was saying, are these watches being sold... You know, at the at the uh, at the arenas where the games are being played, and and she said that yes, they will be sold in some of the arenas. They'll be sold right next to the, you know, at the t-shirt shop or the sweatshirt shop or the pennant you're waving or the cap you're wearing. This is why and, Tissot and, is the like uh, the the largest exporter of Swiss watches in the world. They're hitting a mass market mm-hmm. audience with a, a, a in my opinion, like a really nicely made yeah. watch at that price point. It's I don't follow any team sports, mm-hmm. and I have no affinity for basketball. But yeah, 
if this gets more people to buy a TSO, then let's go with Invicta, mm-hmm. an easy target. <laughs> if this puts a few more TSOs on someone's wrist than an Invicta, and they get yeah. to kind of connect it with something that they love, and so in this case, not an actor, but you know, a pastime that they probably shared with their family, then I understand, like, I, I get that. That's a very yeah. powerful connection, especially with people who love a specific team from their town, that sort of thing. Right. The other side of it is, I actually think it's a little interesting that you brought up Tiso because they have a connection with a guy named Tony Parker. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not entirely sure what sport Tony Parker plays in. He's a basketball player, and he's uh, he's actually French. Okay. They've had a connection with him for a while. Yeah. Right. We might cut that because that makes me sound like a complete idiot because I have the page <laughs> open on my on my computer. But the people at Tiso were saying that, that he could probably rep for more expensive brands, brands that mm-hmm. operate in a higher price point than Tiso. Yeah. But he has a distinct opinion that he should he likes the idea that a watch that he wears is a watch that his fan could wear. Hmm. Interesting. And that seems really powerful because there's a lot of actors that are wearing watches that will Well and, touch and the me. thing about Tiso with the NBA, going back to my earlier point, yes, it doesn't appeal to me specifically, but I'm also not the type that tends to wear team logo sweatshirts or baseball caps, and I'm not into team sports uh, like you aren't. Um, but if you're at the arena um, and you go to the concession and you're, you're going to buy a sweatshirt, which nowadays, you know, sweatshirts are probably pushing 80, 90 bucks or something like that um, for a decent quality one with a printing on the front. If they have a watch sitting in the case that's, that's a $300 Swiss watch with a reputable brand on the dial, you know... I, at that point, it's 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 a bump. It's it's a stretch for a lot of people to spend that kind of money. Um, that maybe just went to the ball game, but uh, you know, I can I can see how it can work. I can see how that that that's a win win for for Tissot and for the teams. So. Yeah, I think watch partnerships are, are a crazy thing. And and as much as I say like, oh, you know, as as a, a watch guy, maybe I'm not swayed one way or another. You know, I, I've spoken about the fact that I have uh, an Explorer Two, you know, a Polar Explorer Two, and. I can remember in Ed Veaster's book him talking about when the start of his relationship with Rolex as I don't actually know what Rolex calls their people. Um, I think they call them testimonies. Oh, okay. Well, well fair, with fair the, enough. With a, with a double E. Okay. On the end. So yeah. if, if you go to Rolex, you actually have to click on a menu on their website and go to the world of Rolex. And then you can pick sports, arts and culture, science and exploration. So they really break it down. And then you actually find out they have a number of partnerships with all sorts of people and, and endeavors. So everything from the, uh, you know, the Bloodhound SSC, that ultra fast jet car, mm-hmm. all the way down to, you know, they have uh, obviously a history in mountaineering because of uh, being one of the first watches on the peak of Everest. And then, of course, they have a relationship or had a relationship. I'm not exactly sure how that worked with uh, Ed Vister's who's the you know first American to do unassisted climbs of all 14 8,000-meter peaks in the world. And in the book, he doesn't mention, I believe, a specific model, but he does mention that it was a white-dialed Rolex, and that always kind of stuck in my brain. And I really like Ed Vister, so I can't honestly say that that didn't in some way measure into my background math when I was kind of drawn to, to hunting down and finding um, a 16570, the, the white dial. Oh, sure. Yeah. And well, a cool watch and a cool backstory. And, and I, I love the Explorer for a number of its backstories, including the fact that despite having started as essentially a caving watch, was adopted in some metric by the uh, the Alpinist community, a community that I'm fairly fascinated with. 
I, I think Rolex is a great example of a brand that doesn't overdo it with their ambassadors and partnerships. They're, they're much more subtle in their approach. And I think uh, it's what has appealed to me. Ed Vester's is a good example. And I mentioned Reinhold Messner earlier, Definitely. who was you know, ar- arguably the greatest mountaineer of all time. But back in the 70s, you know, this watch ambassador thing was, was not nearly as big as it is today. Um, but I remember the old Rolex ads from National Geographic magazine, and there would be a picture of a guy. I remember his name was Red Adair, and he was he like was this firefighter, or he owned a company that was hired to put out the the oil fires during the first Gulf War. And the the whole spiel in the article was Red Adair wears his like Rolex Datejust while he's out in this you know multi hundred degree heat fighting fires in in the deserts of Kuwait or something. And it was like it was. Um, you know, it was just such a, a weird. It's not your usual ambassador, but but I liked. Are they you know these guys that study volcanoes or you know obscure you know cave explorers and and I, that appealed to me about Rolex and it still does. Yeah, and they certainly have their kind of more or less standard partnership ambassador relationship. They have a connection with the equestrian world and mm-hmm. with golf, of course, like a fairly strong connection with the golf world, which makes sense. That seems to fit. Yeah. They have a long-standing relationship with motorsports and, of course, uh, endurance racing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, tennis, yeah. where they have, uh, you know, kind of a specific connection with Roger Federer, mm-hmm. which is, has to have been powerful for the brand. Like, oh, there's yeah. no way that isn't. That seems like, like a really good example of, of the point I was trying to make earlier. Mm-hmm. And then into science and exploration on their site, like, and then you've got underwater exploration and you've got uh, various different awards. And, and I believe they have like a scholarship program. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do some pretty interesting things, but they are fairly quiet about it with a few, you know, yeah, a few examples or a, a few exceptions. Certainly the deep sea challenge with James Cameron, that was a big event for Rolex. Mm-hmm. It allowed them to draw a very straight line between the original... Uh, you know, between the original Bathyscaphe mission, the Navy mission to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Yeah. And then, of course, the next one they did with James Cameron and his one-man sub, they built a specific model that they sell, you know, the uh, this deep-sea sea dweller. And, and I actually have a note on that later in the show. And then they built a specific model that went on the outside of the sub, and it was actually worn on, like, the wrist of one of the mechanical <laughs> arms on the outside of the sub. And that's so... Yeah laughably rolex yeah to a certain extent but it is that kind of thing where like that they're they when they do it they they seem to do it in a very specific manner like if another company did that you would kind of think like well they're kind of ripping on rolex yeah but like you know there's other companies that have put their watches on the outside of submarines to see what happened Mm -hmm. uh you know rolex specifically with that deep sea did some amazing technology to make sure that it would last you know uh, to the bottom i think what where you know, if I really had to analyze my own uh, appeal or, or what draws me to a, a watch partnership, uh, specifically when it comes to ambassadors, it's um, it's whether or not a watch is is actually worn for some specific purpose that draws me. I'm, I'm not necessarily discounting others, but in terms of my own appeal, something like a Ben well, the Speedmaster. Yeah, Speedmaster, which was a completely unintentional partnership, or a Ben yeah. Saunders wearing the watch, or Randall Fines wearing a cobalt, you know, on a trek to, to the North Pole or something, as opposed to, um, you mentioned golf or tennis, which is, these are sports that don't lend themselves to wearing a watch with the notable exception of somebody like Rafael Nadal and their, you know, with his uh, Richard Mille, which, which 
has its appeal to me because he wears the watch for the activity. Whereas the golfers, I understand why they don't, but you know, putting on a watch just for the award ceremony to me does not, it, it's not as appealing as a guy who is diving with his watch or something like that. Yeah, certainly. And, and I think that maybe, maybe I, maybe we missed a certain type of partnership, which is this kind of weird partnership with the history of your watch. Mm-hmm. So whether that's Rolex with, you know, one of the first watches at the top of Everest or Omega with the Speedmaster, I don't think that can be discredited because they're still leveraging that as a partnership. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you and I both saw their attempts to make again, to draw a line to today from from back then, from the Apollo program mm-hmm. when we were in Houston. Yeah. And maybe that's not a one-to-one relationship anymore. You know, those watches were picked for NASA's reasons, not for marketing reasons. Right. Um, which is largely, I think, the secret sauce to why the Speedmaster is what it is. Yeah. It's it, it's entirely, it's so legit. It, it And it's legit because somebody else said it was legit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I think the last phase of it is uh is kind of the watch companies that want to extend into something outside of kind of a traditional marketing space or simply selling more watches and and they try and connect with philanthropy or with um what I would call some sort of a discovery or ecological sport. Yes. Whether that's, you know, uh freehold diving or really really deep diving or you know, just general eco green minded initiatives on various platforms. I know you. Have yeah, some I mean, I I, with, I, uh... I think that this is a f- relatively new sort of uh, partnership. Is is the that sort of environmental causes or? Um, but I, I think what watch companies are seeing is a heightened awareness for environmental causes in general. And so, a company like um, Ajayjer Lecoult that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I met with with the head of of the UNESCO Marine Heritage Program last year in New York, and her name is Fanny Duver. And um, I was really surprised to learn that that Jejer Lecoult actually is the primary finance source behind all of their work, which is something that, you know, JLC doesn't really do a lot of marketing around that part. I had no idea. Yeah, and, and they're like they're like the biggest budget, you know, financial source that, that UNESCO's Marine Heritage Program has. I mean, they basically pay for Fanny Duver's salary probably and, and the travel costs and all this other stuff. And to me, that immediately made it more legit. I mean, JLC could easily make a dive watch or some sort of a watch and slap, you know, UNESCO on the, on the dial or on the case back and, and make it a special edition, but they don't do that. They just, they're taking a chunk of their earnings of their money and giving it to UNESCO, which I, I think is great. And I, I had the chance to visit one of UNESCO's Marine heritage sites just as a, a separate trip, uh, as a vacation down in, in, on the Pacific coast of Mexico and, you know, to, to actually kind of witness firsthand what's going on on the ground and then tie it back to, to what I had heard about what Jejer Lecoult is doing really, it was very powerful to me. It really resonated as, as opposed to a lot of other sort of um, rubber stamp sort of we're, you know, we're green, we're carbon neutral or, or that sort of, those sort of statements. I know you had some experience with uh, Oris and Carlos Costa. Yeah. And I had a chance to, to uh, take a freediving course with him down in Bonaire last summer. Um, and he, st- he was just a great guy. But, you know, he, what was really neat was going back to this notion of somebody actually wearing a watch for the purpose. Um, you know, he had, you know, they've made several Carlos Costa special editions, and he, he wore one of them while we were 
while we were free diving. It was the, the chronograph uh, special edition. And you know, while he was training me, we did some static breath hold training in the pool and he was timing how long I could hold my breath underwater. And he was actually using his Oris chronograph, which I, I don't think was just for my benefit. I think he actually wears this and uses it regularly. So I, to kind of be able to geek out over watches and, and talk to Carlos about you know, free diving and watches and, and his interest in both, um, you know, was, was just a really kind of a cool thing. Well, yeah, and, and, and I think Oris is kind of an interesting example for what we're talking about because they have connections with everyone from uh, F1 teams to perform, you know, performance athletes. And then finally, of course, even as recently as this past Basel World, we saw another one of their uh, watches designed to help support a charity. So a certain amount of the proceeds from their great their Aquas Great Barrier Reef 2, which is the second in, in now this charity series, is going to support the Australian Marine Conservation Society and their efforts to protect the Great Barrier Reef. Assuming that this falls within what you and I believe is the realm of the Grey NATO, you know, we love diving, we love nature, we love watches, I actually wanted to go a little bit deeper on what that relationship between Oris and the uh, AMCS is like, and, and we actually connected with the AMCS for an interview. Uh, so I spoke with their director and uh, a conservationist that is working with them. It's an interesting way to look at it from the charity side. We always see it from the watches side and from their marketing, but uh, we wanted to go right to the source. So let's jump right to the interview. We really hope you like it. Okay, so I've got uh, Darren Kindleysides and Imogen Zaytoven from the AMCS on the line. They're all the way in Australia. It's tomorrow in Australia, which is exciting. Uh, Darren, let's start uh, with you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with the AMCS? Yes, thank you. Lovely to, to speak uh, speak with you today. Uh, I'm the, the director of the Australian Marine Conservation Society. Um, I've been here for uh, seven years, probably uh, seven of the uh, best years of my, of my life. It's been... Um, Wonderful uh, heading up uh, AMCS, which is um, Australia's leading marine conservation charity, one of the oldest conservation charities here in Australia, um, and have uh, really been at the uh, the forefront of um, of protecting uh, this wonderful marine environment we have here in Australia. So, so that's me in a snapshot. Excellent, and from a, a broader scope, the AMCS operates as a charity and it's concerned with uh, exclusively marine habitats surrounding Australia. Obviously, that's, a, that's a, a huge area to consider. So it's more than just the Great Barrier Reef, correct? Well, that's right. I mean, our, our focus is, is Australia's oceans and the, the ocean territory here is the third largest on the planet. But also it's been officially uh, ranked as the, the richest in terms of marine life by uh, by a group of international scientists called the Global Census of Marine Life. So it's, it's one of the largest ocean territories and it's it's the richest on the planet. And it stretches from the warm waters, the tropical waters of places like the Great Barrier Reef, um, all the way down through um, through temperate waters to uh, the cold sub-Antarctic. And we have some amazing island territories down there. So, look, you know, Australia... Um, really is an incredible place, incredibly important when it comes to the protection of ocean wildlife because we have so much of it and such a such a range of it. In our work, um, in simple terms, is to protect uh, protect Australia's marine environment, and that includes you know, fighting to protect very special areas like the Great Barrier Reef or or places like Ningaloo Reef on the west coast, another fantastic place to dive, but 
do a lot of work protecting threatened species, turtles, dugongs, dolphins, but we try and focus on uh, doing the few key things that have the greatest impact. And what are your current programs in place speaking directly to, say, the Great Barrier Reef? So, yes, the Great Barrier Reef has, and the protection of a reef has, has really been in our DNA uh, since we formed 50 years ago. Uh, the Australian Marine Conservation Society led the very first campaigns to protect the Great Barrier Reef, uh, starting way back in in 1965. And so, really, ever since, it's been uh, it's been core to our work. And Australia now has the, uh, the single largest uh, network of, of marine parks of any country on on the planet. And again, that's that's down to the work of AMCS and organisations like ourselves. That's very cool. And then, obviously, the the kind of shortest line between the Grey NATO, the podcast, and uh, the AMCS is through Oris. So would you be able to speak to that partnership and how that's worked uh, as far as helping the AMCS with its goals to protect the reef? Well, AMCS is delighted to be partnering with Oris Watches again to help protect the Great Barrier Reef. But um, the uh, This is the Oris Great Barrier Reef Limited Edition 2 watch. The first watch uh, came out in 2010, uh, and back then helped raise both funds and raise awareness um, of uh, for, for and of the need to protect the Great Barrier Reef. And that really came at a, a critical time when the future outlook for the reef was looking quite poor. Threats were beginning to mount, um, including the expansion of, uh, of industrial ports, shipping, uh, large-scale dredging. Um, and those funds really... Uh, were very timely in helping us um, supercharge our work to protect the Great Barrier Reef. Work that over the, the sort of subsequent five years uh, has helped achieve some amazing things in terms of protecting the reef from mass scale dredging and, well, mass scale dumping at least of, of, of dredge spoil, helping protect, uh, protect the reef's sharks. From, from fishing and help protect some of the most precious parts of reefs coastline from from port expansion but look really the um, the partnership with with Oris watches it brings much needed funds for our work to protect the reef uh, but also um, helps uh, bring attention to uh, the need to conserve the reef and you know if you were in Australia uh, today walking through an airport you'd see large billboards promoting the watch but also promoting that partnership with AMCS and the need to protect the reef uh, so it's um, it's something that works in, in both ways yes we need resources uh, to make sure we have the funds to be that champion for the Great Barrier Reef that we have been for the last 50 years um, but you know we do need um, to have the public you know, seeing the threats to the reef um, and, and wanting to do things to help protect that reef. Okay, that's excellent. It's it's encouraging to hear that there's an actual, that it's not just something that a, a watch brand decided to stamp into their kind of portfolio of marketing and then move on. Imogen, I have a few questions for you as well. You're a longstanding player in the marine conservation space and a recipient of the Order of Australia. Would you be able to give us a quick breakdown of your background and, and your current role with the AMCS? Sure. Um, well, I um, first started my relationship with the Great Barrier Reef way back in 1983, a long time ago. Um, and I went out uh, off the North Queensland coastline, right out to the Outer Barrier Reef, did my first dive out there. And, was, you know, something I'll never forget, it was a whole new world that opened in front of my eyes. Um, 
just the extraordinary beauty of the corals and the enormous quantity of fish. It was just extraordinary. Soon after that, I decided I really wanted to dedicate uh, my life to conservation. As soon as I could, I became more and more focused on marine conservation because that's my passion. And for many years, I've been working either on the reef, Great um, Barrier Reef, or more generally on marine conservation, sometimes globally, um, uh, or on particular species like sharks, for example, which are severely depleted. But I was absolutely delighted uh, late last year and September last year uh, to be able to join the Australian Marine Conservation Society. I'd actually worked uh, alongside AMCS for many years. I've worked alongside Darren for, for many, many years. Um, and so um, I was really delighted to join the organisation and, and to take up a position running um, AMCS's reef campaign. I have to say, on the other side of the coin, um, I found many of the issues um, were still very much alive. Many of the threats were still there. So in some ways it was same old uh, threats. Um, in other ways it was just, um, you know, uh, important to recognise that huge gains had been made in the last two to three years um, by my predecessor, um, culminating in um, some new legislation um, that restricted industrial port developments all along the Great Barrier Reef coastline, which was a fantastic result for AMCS and for the reef in general. So I'm now um, uh, doing the next phase of the campaign, looking ahead um, at addressing other threats. Okay, and uh, I, I know I read an article last week that would suggest widespread bleaching of the coral on the Great Barrier Reef. You, you were talking about your first experience, you know, a little over 30 years ago. What's it like diving the reef today? What, what's changed? What are the successes of the conservation programs? The bleaching event has just happened quite recently, and I'm actually going up to the reef tomorrow, so I'll actually be able to give you a better answer in 24 hours. But I've certainly seen a lot of videos and footage and photos of um, the far northern section of the reef, and it's a very shocking um, image to see what's happening up there. It's, it's not uniform across the entire Great Barrier Reef because it actually is a vast area, but in the northern... Um, third of the reef it's it's um it's very very concerning what what would you really like a, a say ecotourist a diver a traveler to know about that fragile ecosystem from like a, a personal level if somebody was going to go and visit are the things they should avoid as far as um behaviors near the reef working with certain partners to make sure that everything's above board in in terms of how you're diving things like that yeah, reef tourism is um, is incredibly valuable here uh, to the economy in, in Queensland. It's worth uh, $6 billion a year um, and employs almost 70,000 people. And largely, um, you know, over the years, uh, the Great Bay Reef Marine Park Authority, the man government's management body for, for the park, has um, it brought in a, a, a really good system of, of, of managing the, the on-water tourism. And so... Um, of course, you know we would encourage people to go out with uh, with listed reef, reef tourism operators, and, and of course, when in the water, just be uh, um, you know, very wary of the environment that you're 
swimming, snorkeling or, or, or diving in. Uh, reefs are very, um, uh, corals are very uh, fragile and susceptible to a, 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 a fin kick here, here and there. And so, look, um, you know, of course we encourage people to, to get out in the water of a reef and, and, and enjoy it because um, being such an important economic asset provides even more reason for our governments to, to protect it beyond just its, its importance to, to biodiversity. But, of course, we need to be mindful and careful of the environment we're in. Yeah, I was just going to add some practical things when somebody's out there. It's really important not to stand on coral. <laughs> um, it's bad for the coral and you'll probably get cut. Um, and, of course, um, it's important not to put too much sunscreen on um, because sometimes, you know, when there are uh, over 100 people jumping into the water having a delightful time and they're all lathered up with sunscreen, it can actually um, have an impact on the, the health of the reef because the corals are very, very sensitive little animals. Um, and so they're just two really uh, important tips. Um, and, of course, if you're looking for a good operator to go out with, make sure that you go out with one that's eco-certified. Um, that means that you'll get really good education, um, interpretation of the reef, and you'll get the most out of your trip. Well, those are great tips. And uh, I guess to wrap up, we'll try for a little bit of consumer advice. Both of you have a great deal of experience with uh, the reef. If, uh, let's say, a listener was planning to come and do some diving in Australia, do you have a couple of favorite spots you could recommend? Something they could Google Map or read up more about for maybe some reviews? Sure. Um, a couple of my favorite places, um, one is called the Cod Hole, and uh, you go there from Port Douglas, which is about an hour's drive north of Cairns. The Cod Hole is famous because um, it's where you, you're guaranteed to see potato cod, which are very big fish. They are named potato cod because they look like potatoes. <laughs> and um, they're very charismatic. Um, they're used to seeing people, um, and so they don't get frightened by you. And it's just a joyful experience seeing them there. Sounds good. The second one is um, a place called Steve's Bommy, beautiful reef. Um, it's just got gorgeous corals on it, very beautiful coral cover, um, and it's a well-known favourite dive spot, again, up in the general vicinity north of Cairns. So if you can do both of those um, dives uh, in your trip, that would be brilliant. Well, those sound both like amazing dives. I've certainly seen videos on YouTube of the potato cods. They're just huge, uh, and they look like a blast to dive with. Uh, Darren Imogen thank you so much for making time to uh, speak with me and uh, answer a few of the questions we're thrilled to hear that Oris is actually having an effect in the world where these watches kind of make sense where they're you know you're diving and, and appreciating that environment and that ecosystem uh, beyond having say a listener buy one of these watches should that should that be something they're interested in uh, do you have anything you would ask people at large as far as uh, ways that they could be involved with the AMCS or help out? Well, look, I would encourage um, people hearing this or, or, or reading about it to, to visit the Australian Marine Conservation Society's website. That's marineconservation.org.au. Uh, and look at the work we're doing. Perhaps sign a petition uh, to our politicians here in, in, in Australia, encouraging them to protect the reef. Um, but also, um, you know, we're limited by what we can do by resources. So I would just encourage people to consider donating to us directly uh, so on their behalf we can keep doing the work that's needed to protect this global icon that is the Great Barrier Reef. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. If anyone has anything else they want to check out, be sure to go to marineconservation.org.au and uh, you can swing by our show notes for a link to that. 
uh, again, thank you so much for the time and, uh, and, and for speaking with me. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Darren and Imogen. Uh, thanks very much for uh, making the time, both of you, for that interview. We're going to try and do more interviews, as many as we can, really. And we're going to try and make them as varied as possible. So if we can find a charity to talk to about watches, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be sure to do that. Uh, so we're going to move into new business here. So, uh, Jason, let's take it away. What's uh, what's new on your plate these days? Well, I've, uh, I've been reviewing the new Breitling Exospace B55 Connected, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, and it's kind of a departure for, for me as a watch to review. It, it's actually a, a watch that they showed us a sort of a prototype last year, um, but it was really kind of fully uh, introduced um, more recently. It's Breitling's, it's sort of an evolution of Breitling's classic sort of analog digital pilot's watch. It's got a black titanium case. It's, it's really well made, nice blue rubber strap. Um, and it's got all the usual Breitling functions um, with the, the analog hands and then the, the digital display that has a bunch of alarms and timers and things. But what separates this watch from kind of a typical Breitling Pilots watch is that uh, the functions of the watch can either be controlled by the crown of the watch, like the typical ones, but it also has uh, a, a specially developed app on the phone that interacts with the watch. And trust me, I am not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a mechanical watch guy to the core. And so I was very skeptical about this, but I've been wearing it for a couple of weeks and um, I'm, I'm really quite impressed. It's really a, a, oh, you're in the dark side. Yeah. I don't know. I, you might have to drag me back, but it's, <laughs> it's really, it's really, it's really been kind of a fun watch to get, get to know. And I think what's really impressive about it to me is this app. I mean, it, that, that is really what separates it from a standard, you know, Breitling analog digital watch. But, um, Anyway, I'll, I'll have that review up on Hodinkee uh, in a few weeks. Um, and it's not just the app. Like you also have, it also does like your notifications and things like that based on pushing them from your phone. Yes. Um, it, it certainly is. Not, it, what it doesn't have is it's not an activity tracker or sleep tracker or anything like that. It is, it, it purely, um, it, it's the app controlling special functions on the phone and then also receiving notifications. So if you have a meeting reminder or uh, an email comes in or a text message or a phone call, it'll vibrate or beep and you can set all this up um, through the app uh, to, to react how you want it to. I mean, um, if you're already in the market for something like one of their analog digital watches, yeah, this seems like a no-brainer. I mean, it's an expensive no-brainer yeah, in it is the very world expensive. of smart watches. But, it is, but yes. Breitling, you know, you may, people may have opinions one way or another about the look and the size of a lot of their watches, but they make a really nicely made watch. Yes. They it, are it's very high quality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I know uh I know someone who has a B fifty five and had had it for quite a while, uh basically since they were available in the States and said that it works really well every yeah. time. It doesn't have the same teething issues that some of the other smart watches including you know watches like the apple watch have had yeah so not only does the you can control all the silly difficult complicated pilot watch features mm -hmm. in the app but you yeah. can also do all your notifications and it just works and you're you're at any point you look down and you're just wearing a breitling which is exactly. like a, a cool nerdy space watch it's neat. exactly and that's exactly what i like about it it's not trying to be an activity tracker or anything too smart it's taking existing breitling what they're already good at and adding this additional functionality to it. And, you know, I had also worn the B50, the B50 cockpit last summer, and 
that watch was just it, it felt too big it was kind of awkwardly shaped this one's a little bit smaller millimeter? yeah this one yeah. this one i don't know the diameter off the top of my head but it's it's a it wears really well i've been wearing it almost every day for the past uh, probably a week to 10 days and and i've really grown to like it so Stay tuned for that review. I'll certainly mention it on a future show, and we'll put up a link when that goes live. So that's uh, yeah, that's what's new with me. What about you, James? Uh, I you know a few episodes ago, you'll remember that I had mentioned that I was looking for strap options for that Explorer Two, and one of the ones that came back in a couple of emails and more than a handful on Instagram was Everest straps. So Everest makes essentially like custom, as close to what you could get as possible to an OEM rubber strap for Rolex. Now, most people who know Rolex will know that they don't make rubber straps except for, or rubber style straps, except for one watch. So you can get what's called an Oyster Flex on, I think, one or two versions of the Yachtmaster, mm-hmm. the Everose Yachtmaster. But otherwise, you can't buy a sub or you can't buy an Explorer and, and then buy a Rolex rubber strap. So in comes Everest and uh, they offered to send me one, so full disclosure, I didn't pay for it. Looking at it now, I actually, you know, I've had it for a while, and I haven't, ta- I put it on the Explorer, and I haven't taken it off because I really, really like it. So the strap is uh, 225 US, and for those of you who have never bought an OEM strap from a luxury manufacturer, that's going to sound fairly expensive. And I totally understand that. You look at, um, uh, like I've talked in the past about something like a Hirsch Pure is about 60 US. And then what do you figure an isoframe is? Isoframe is about 100 bucks. Okay, so about 100 bucks. And then Mm -hmm. from there, there's kind of a no man's land. It's a full on no man's land for Rolex, but there's a no man's land. And then you typically land with the OEM options. So if you've ever priced, here's another easy example is a watch that I have is my uh, Omega 2254 Seamaster. There's an OEM strap for that. You you can buy through a supplier online, like a reputable Omega supplier online. And I want to say it's about 600 bucks. <laughs> They're so expensive. I know exactly what you're talking um, about. Yeah. I want to say it's about $600. It, maybe, maybe in my brain, I'm doing the, the conversion to CAD. My point is, is that it's quite expensive. And, uh, Braemont offers their Temple Island rubber strap, which I have one and I rather like for my uh, solo. And that comes in in if you do the conversion from the British pound to CAD or to USD, I believe, somewhere around 225, 230 bucks. Mm-hmm. So I think if you look and look at comparison and if you've ever had to price the strap like the strap on your Breitling. Yeah. That you're boring. One, Breitling makes really nice straps. I don't care for the way that they say Breitling. Yeah. But the actual quality of the strap is yeah, awesome. Very good. With the Everest, I'm just overall really impressed. And I think if you're in a position to have a Rolex and you want a rubber strap, I'd be really surprised if you got this and you hated it. Yeah. The one I have is a bluish color. The the um, The rubber is beautifully finished. So there's no kind of errant seams or rough patches anywhere. The edges are really clean, really nice. Um, it's on a simple pin buckle. They make a version that allows you to use the clasp from your bracelet, Mm -hmm. which I think is a neat idea if you don't intend to swap between your bracelet very often, because otherwise you're swapping in the bracelet and then putting the clasp back on it. It's just a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So I asked to check out the one with the tang buckle and it's a simple tang buckle with kind of a recessed tang that allows it to sit right up and shoulder up on the strap. 
Uh, it's a perfect fit into the case, as which is largely their secret sauce, is that they're making a strap that theoretically will fit perfectly with your case. No gaps, no wiggle. This one's kind of a nice, not quite royal, not quite navy blue, somewhere in the middle. It's a great color. It's really, really soft. And it's just starting to get warm in Vancouver. And I the, the watch seems to handle sweat pretty well. It has kind of an internal relief, a little pocket on the inside. So it's not just a bunch of rubber directly against your wrist, which is what the Hirsch Pure is like. It yeah. doesn't handle sweat as well as I would hoped. Yeah. And I I mean, go on Instagram and take a look. The, the blue with the white dial, I love the way it looks. It's really, really comfortable, yeah. super yeah. summery. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I remember when these first came out and... The first brand I think that that came out was the brand called Rubber B. Rubber and, B, yeah, yeah, and and they were quite expensive, and they were all about you know we're made in Switzerland and whatever else. And then when Everest came out, they looked appealing. I thought, boy, they they look very similar to the Rubber Bs, but they actually came in cheaper than the than the Rubber Bs. Um, and I tried to get one for I've got the the one forty sixty M no date Submariner from the mid nineties, and. Um, I really wanted to get one of these straps for that watch, and and they, they still don't make one that that fits uh, the one forty sixty, and and so I'm I'm patiently waiting for for them to come out with that one. I can't imagine it's that much different than than your Explorer two, but uh, I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, the rubber B is two forty and has um kind of a different aesthetic in the way that they kind of have like a lug design, a rubber line that goes along the, and, and like aesthetically, I like the Everest a little better if I was just to pick them without knowing the two brands. Sure. I haven't seen the rubber bee in person, but uh, I do have a buddy, Max. Uh, Max, if you're listening, you're awesome. <laughs> um, and he did a review of the rubber bee on YouTube. At a certain point, a lot of people may not like any of these straps because you have to be comfortable removing the bracelet. Yeah from your watch and in a previous episode i mentioned buying spring bar pliers Mm -hmm. so if you're the type of guy that would spend 90 dollars on a spring bar plier for your rolex (laughs) you're probably a pretty good candidate for testing out uh you know kind of a semi more expensive customy sort of rubber strap sure swing by their website uh i really enjoy the watch and the rubber strap is just another way to wear it and it works really well it feels very close to the overall design and it's something that's pretty successful all right so it's time for a little q a if you have a question for jason and i please 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 write us thegraynado at gmail.com we're taking all sorts of questions i'm collecting them I'm replying to almost everything, but if you don't get a reply, it might mean that you're going to get on the show. We really love all these questions, and we're getting some really fun ones, like this one from Matt, who wrote us an email asking, what not currently produced or historic models from any brand would you like to see reintroduced? So obviously Matt's kind of, you know, the the vintage re-edition trend is huge. They recently picked a new Octavia for next year, selected by the Watch Nerd community. Um... If we could simply have our whims and snap our fingers, what what would we do, Jason? Where 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 do you think you would land on that? Well, I I've got one, and and this relates actually to to Tag Heuer, um, a watch that that I've always loved that I think would actually be pretty nice in a modern edition. Is uh, and people might be aware of this watch. It's the the Heuer. It was called the Bund Flyback Chronograph, and it was a watch that they made, and I think Zinn still makes a similar watch. Um, 
they made it for the German uh, military back in the in the 1970s. And it's it's just it's a big oversized steel chronograph, two registers um, with a rotating uh, black bezel. You know, it's got the flyback uh, capability. It was it was hand wound, I believe, but it was a big watch. It was like 42 or 43 millimeters, like a, probably a 20 millimeter lug width. So I, you could almost just reproduce that watch as is. Uh, and, and I just think it would be a, a fantastic watch. And I think since Tag is kind of digging into their archives lately, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe that's one that they'll, they'll pull out in one of these coming years. Such a super cool design, like a really military Octavia. Yeah. Now, now, since I mentioned that, and, and I did bring up the sin, if you do want a modern re-edition of that watch, you can get pretty close with the, the sin, uh, 156B, I think is what it's called. So you can check that one out, but it's not quite the same, but it, it has that same aesthetic. What about you, James? What's, what would you dig up? Uh, I have a real strong love for a chronograph that I don't think gets any general appreciation. I think they're fairly rare. It's the uh, Gerard Perigo Olympico Chrono. So these were mid to late 60s, maybe into the early 70s. You'd have to check with an expert, of which I'm not. But they had a 12-hour bezel. They used the Excelsior Park EP40 movement, which is this awesome uh, column wheel chronograph movement. And they were kind of a race-inspired but, you know, kind of like a mix between like an Octavia and an Omega Mark II mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in a, you know, they weren't too big. They weren't too small. Really, really great design. So it'd be awesome to see GP turn around and make a new Olympico, especially if they stuck fairly close to the original formula. Obviously, there's going to be differences. But, you know, with how they are today, they could put an amazing movement in it and they could make a really stunning watch. They, they, they make so many nice watches. And... I don't think that they necessarily have the sports watch yeah. uh, market right now. I think that they have a few models that are interesting. I really like the WWTCs. Yeah. But I think they could do a lot with those Olympico. I think it's a cool name. I think it has a neat history. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll link a, a photo in the show notes, but a really, really cool watch. And then uh, on top of that, another one that I love that I honestly think they could turn around and just make right now is uh, Seiko used to make world timers. So if you Google or show notes, it's a 6117-6400 or a 6117-6410. And there was like a few uh, model ranges in between those. But these are uh, kind of vintage uh, world timers with uh, an independent city bezel that's controlled by the crown. And then, of course, your crown, once it pulls out, it does the time and a 24-hour hand and gives you the ability to track like it's a true world timing function. These watches, like on eBay, I, I obviously can't speak to, to their legitimacy, but there's a few on eBay at any one time, and they're not a fortune, typically under $500, say between four and six. And uh, I think they're really cool. And I think if enough people notice them, they're going to get more expensive. But those are really cool. And then I think lastly, and, and I know Jason, you're, you're going to feel you're going to feel the same draw to this one as me, is uh, I'd love to see an old school 50 Fathoms. So it doesn't have to be vintage inspired. It's just if you look at the current 50 Fathoms, I believe they're 45 millimeters and they're quite shiny. But a simple aesthetically simple 50 fathoms with a brushed case, maybe 40 to 42 millimeters. If you could, the same movement that's in the Bathyscaphe three-hander. It's a fantastic movement. And I, I think that there's some there's a pocket that's just missing in uh, in Blancpain's dive watch because they don't have essentially their like sub-fighter. 
They have a bigger 50 fathoms. They, you know, the bathyscaph is awesome, but it's, it's, it's decidedly modern. Yeah. And I think that they could, they could, if you blended the two together, basically. Yeah. Right. You could come up with something just really, really cool. Well, the aesthetics of the, of the current 50 fathoms, it, the aesthetics really tie back nicely to the, to the original with the bezel and the, so some of the dial markings and things. Oh, and but, the hands it's and all, ju- yeah. It's just too big. I mean, it's it's a giant watch. I, I had the, the tribute to Aqualung for a while um, for a review a few years ago, and I love the watch. But yeah, if they just size that thing down to 40 millimeters, for one thing, I think they'd hit a market that not many people are in now. I mean, you know, Omega's at, you know, 41, 42. You know, of course, the sub has always been around 40. But I, I, there aren't many others uh, in that space. And I feel like a, a, a good you know, retro style 40 millimeter Blanc Pond would be, would be super cool. You know, your, your mention of the Olympico and the 12 hour bezel made me think of another one that I'd love to see, uh, reissued. It's the Breitling. Uh, they made a, a watch called the Copilot. Uh, I think it was called the uh, CP765 was the reference. And, uh, it was the watch that was recently discovered to be worn by Jean-Claude Keeley, who was a, an Olympic skier back in the sixties who then became a very high-level executive at Rolex, ironically. But it's a beautiful watch. It's the reverse panda with the white subdials, black dial, a, th- a really slim 12-hour rotating bezel, cla- classic really sort beautiful. of 60s chronograph style. You know, given given this sort of retro trend, and Breitling is, has been coming out with, with a few kind of cool ones. They, have, of course, have always had the Navitimer, but then the, the Transocean... I could see this one slotting in nicely. Oh with, yeah, uh, with their their collection. Another twelve hour bezel. That's not going to hurt anyone. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, if you're uh, oddly enough, Jason, and I landed in roughly a similar place with a couple older chronographs that haven't been given the reissue treatment just yet. And if you're a fan, if you're looking, if if you're clicking a show link or you Googled along at this Copilot beautiful watch or the Olympico, or or if you're let's say you're a fan of the uh, Inacar, uh Sherpa graphs and things like that. Uh, one final note on this before we move on, just follow uh, Watch Fred on Instagram. It's almost exclusively pictures of vintage, cool vintage chronographs, not not excluding things like the Bund that Jason spoke about, but also things like very cool, lots of cool Breitlings, uh, lots of cool Ina cars. He has a fantastic collection and he very much an eye for photography. So if you want to scratch that itch without maybe actually spending the money on one of these you know difficult to find old chronographs follow watch fred for kind of a daily dose of uh, really cool chronographs and such yeah he's a good follow yeah no doubt well matt thanks again for the question i think that was an absolute winner and i hope that you enjoyed your answers any of you listening to this right now pick up your phone find the post for episode seven and let us know what would you like to see remade uh, I, I think it, we could actually get a kind of cool discussion going on the Instagram thread and we'd love to know what you would like to see new. Like I said, feel free to send your question through to thegraynado at gmail.com and uh, we'll get to it as soon as possible. Okay, and we're back with uh, our final notes section. Uh, this is where we like to share with you uh, some recent discoveries, whether they're uh, books or movies or short videos freebies, uh, anything like that. James, uh, what have you got for us this week? All right, I got a whole collection of free stuff and then possibly something expensive (laughs) if you so feel it. So the first up is actually two posts by a great blogger, watchesbysjx.com. He did uh, a post about 
the Rolex Deep Sea D Blue. So this is a watch that like in the pantheon of all the Rolex sport watches is one of my like one of my least favorite. It's not that I actively dislike it. I just not especially interested in it until I took a moment to read this piece that he wrote because it explains the engineering behind their ring lock system. So I really don't want to spoil it. You should seriously consider going to the show notes, clicking through the link and checking out his post about this watch and the really cool way that they manage the huge pressures um, in, in an attempt to get a watch that is 3,900 meters water resistant. Brand new respect for the watch. It's better explained, in my opinion, here than it is on the Rolex website. And it's really worth checking out if you're a watch nerd, especially if you're into dive watches. But even just in general, mechanical engineering and, you know, interesting design, I think this is worth looking at. And there's graphics that explain various elements of it. So you know, swing by and check that out. And then within that document, um, he posted a link to an older document from uh, mid last year about Seiko's Marine Master tuna diver surviving a similar style submarine plunge into the Pacific. So in this one, uh, Seiko is so beautifully Seiko in the way that they do things. So apparently they simply went to their manufacturing line, grabbed a few Marine Masters, I believe uh, two automatics and two quartz, zip-tied them to the outside of a submarine, pointed a camera at them, and just went down. (laughs) And you can see that the time syncs up with the timestamp in the video, and they literally just went until the second hands all stopped. (laughs) So again, this is one where I'm just, I'm flat out not going to give it away. I want to tell you, but I won't. Uh, how deep the, how much further these watches went than they're rated for. But the one teaser I will give is they provide a photo at a certain depth where the case back of these Marine Masters, these are like big tuna can Marine Masters, the case back is visibly deformed. <laughs> it's so cool for someone who likes the sorts of things that I think a lot of us, you know, that would make this podcast or listen to this podcast like. I highly recommend you check those out. Both of those are on my Twitter because I love them, and they're also on the show notes. So check out both of those. I think they were both excellent posts and just the exact type of posts that I like to read. Uh, Next up is a watch review from the guys at Worn & Wound. So this is of the Halios Delphin PVD. So the guys at Worn & Wound are great, and they did a fantastic review of, uh, of a watch that I've seen in person and I dove with in Mexico, but I haven't had a chance to review yet. Swing by their site or the show notes, whatever, and check out their review of the Delphin. So Halios is a small watch brand in Vancouver. I'm sure a lot of you know Halios. And the Delphin um, is a, you know, 43 and a half millimeter dive watch that they make, you know, an external bezel, traditional style dive watch. But tr- true to Halios's form, the watch itself is their design. Um, they're not specifically making an homage or a reference to anything else. And I actually think the watch is gorgeous. It's a great case. I took a steel version, not the, in my opinion, cooler PVD version, diving in Mexico, and it's a killer dive watch. Great bezel, super legible, lots of fun that way. And the uh, the guys at Warner Wine do a really nice job giving you a breakdown of the PVD version, which is identical except for being black. And the black, in my opinion, really suits it. Yeah, I think so too. 
Yeah, it, I think it's a really solid look. And, and the main reason I bring this up is I've reviewed, I think, almost every watch that Halios has ever made. And I get a lot of flack because Halios has sold out almost every watch they've ever made, typically <laughs> before I can post a review. <laughs> or, or someone else can post a review. So this is one of the few rare times where, as we're recording this, um, the Delphin is actually still in stock. But if you know Halios and, and you've been wanting to pick up one of their watches and you simply didn't realize the Delphin was in, here's your little PSA that, like, they have them in stock. And this is a watch that, uh, it's 9015 based. It's uh, well under $800 with shipping. And I, I think it's a killer watch for the money. Great value. Uh, and by all means, check out the review and then make the decision for yourself. I don't believe they're going to make more Delphins in the future. I could have that wrong, but Halios tends to eventually retire designs and move on entirely to something else. And finally, this is a first for us. I'm actually recommending a piece of music. So this may totally backfire, but a band that I really love and generally feel is misunderstood in the world, The Vines released a new single this week so if, i don't know you got spotify or wherever go on youtube it's called in miracle land check it out i i'm really happy that the vines are still making music you know they were quite famous for some time for songs like get free and ride with me and i don't think those songs really illustrated the true sound of the vines which was more psychedelic has elements of the beatles and nirvana and obviously some of those elements play out in Ride and, and, and Get Free. Check it out. It's, it's great. I'm really enjoying it. And I can't wait for a whole new album by The Vines. That wraps up my final notes. I think there's plenty there to check out. Uh, Jason, what, what do you got? Well, I was waiting for you to hum a few bars of that song. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know if I talked about it enough to be able to play it. I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> um. Well, on my end, uh, I have uh, some reading material for you. Uh, actually, the, the, the book that I'm going to recommend is, is not really reading material. It's more uh, just a visual, uh, visual treat. Uh, there's a, a great photographer based out of Los Angeles. His name is Michael Muller. And he kind of uh, cut his teeth doing snowboarding photography uh, while he was living in Colorado. And then when he moved to Los Angeles back in the mid-90s, he fell in with um, kind of this crowd of up-and-coming uh, movie stars or actors at the time, including Leonardo DiCaprio and a few others. And his photos of them garnered a lot of... Uh, uh, they were just different enough that, that they garnered a lot of attention. And pretty soon he got gigs making movie posters and shooting a lot of commercial stuff for advertising. Um, but his true love was uh, was the sea. And he's a, he's a real avid diver. And... Uh, over the past, oh, I don't know, about 10 years, he's taken a great interest in, in photographing sharks of all different uh, types, and um, including great white sharks and hammerheads and things. And uh, just to throw a watch angle, he's a, he's a big IWC fan. Um, he actually shot their, all their catalog photography back in 2008, 2009 for the, uh, the Aquatimer release at the time. And they actually, it was one of his first um, expeditions. He went to the Galapagos and uh, did a lot of shooting for the Aquatimer, and I, I still think that's that was such a great, um, great set of photography for that um, for that watch. Um, but he just came out with a new book. It was published by Taschen, which is a, a European publishing house. They always do big, beautiful, coffee table sized, you know, uh, photography books. The book is simply called Sharks, 
and it's it's just stunning for anyone that likes photography or um, nature um, sharks diving whatever um, just a great book you open it up there's there's no text other than in the last maybe quarter of the book where there's some essays and some notes about the photographs um, it's just one page after another of just beautiful shark photography i saw a few of them on instagram and, and I started following him and a lot of his Instagram is like celebrity photos and yeah, like uh, movie posters and things yeah. like that. But a couple of the shots of the sharks are like legitimately breathtaking. Just wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, his whole spiel is, is he, um, he really wanted to replicate studio lighting un- in an underwater environment. So he actually had high powered, you know, 1200 watt studio lights engineered that could be taken underwater with oh wow uh, electrical cables strung over the side of a boat and you'd have like car batteries on the dive boat up above provi- providing the power hardcore. yeah i mean really hardcore and he, and he does it in really challenging environments so uh that's a really cool one and then the other uh recommendation i have is it was a, a new york times article that ran a couple of weeks ago that is sort of near and dear to my heart it was called an insurance salesman and a doctor walk into a bar and end up at the north pole and it's it's about actually the first legitimate or or undisputed achievement uh, of the North Pole um, in history actually, and it was in 1969, and it was actually undertaken as an expedition, uh, almost unwittingly, by an insurance salesman based right up the road from where I am here in in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, uh, who got together with a buddy of his uh, one evening up in Duluth, and decided why don't we take our snowmobiles and and ride to the North Pole. And they got a little bit of underwriting, including um, from Omega, who provided uh, Speedmaster watches for their navigation. And they were very ill-prepared, uh, other than their watches, of course. Um, and they just set off for the North Pole. And they had a couple of false starts, a bunch of blunders. But this article is just a great read. It, it's, it's laugh out loud, um, funny. Um, but in the end, it's I found it very inspiring because it was just some normal guys that set off and did some something really remarkable. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, you you linked me the uh, you linked me the post, and I, I read it. You were excited about it, and I read it, and it's a very human story. Yes, these weren't these were obviously like adventurous guys, but they weren't like polar explorers. No, yeah, and you know they had they had some backing from was it Bombardier? Yes, to get yeah. some snowmobiles, and they just kind of went for it. Yeah, <laughs> and really, it shouldn't have worked. Right, right. One of them should have killed one of them, and 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 and, and there should have been way more infighting, and 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 they, you know that there's no way an early snowmobile really should have been capable of what they did, but they had a guy you know keeping them running. Yeah, it's a really wild story. Anyone, anyone who's listening should click that link. It's really fun. Yeah, great way to yeah. spend a coffee break or, or or whenever you have time to read something. Yeah. Really, uh, really cool uh, story. I definitely endorse that one. Yeah, and just on a final note on that one too. It's such a testament to really great long-form journalistic writing, which I'm a big fan of too. So definitely worth a read. No doubt, love some uh, love some long form. The more the better, really. Yeah. Speaking of long form, as always, thank you so much for listening. Hit the show notes for more details. You can follow us on Instagram. Jason is at Jason Heaton. I'm at J E Stacy, and you can follow the show at the Gray NATO. If you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com or hashtag thegraynado on Instagram. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts, or you can grab the feed directly from thegraynado.com. Music throughout is Siesta by Jazzer via the Free Music Archive. And until next time, we leave you with this quote from Helen Keller. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Nothing.